Hello, folks. Unfortunately, Fran and I had some scheduling conflicts this week, so there will be no new episode. But instead of leaving you in silence, I have released a cult story I did last month from behind our Patreon wall, and we are very much looking forward to next week's episode, and we will be using the time of our absence to prepare for that. So see you guys next week. Hope you enjoy a little something as opposed to nothing at all. And as Fran would say, deuces. Mankind has solved some of his greatest problems with teamwork. Nothing wrong with it. Teams provide a unit, a family, a support system, and most important, accountability. Most teams have leaders. A good team can go to the promised land, accomplish all of its goals, win all the trophies, and do things a singular force never thought possible. But what happens to teams with bad leaders? Today, we're going to dive into an example of this with the addiction program turned cult, Senanon. Charles E. Diederich was a barely functioning alcoholic who worked in sales in Ohio. After relocating to Southern California, when his divorce was final in 1956, he decided to give the popular group Alcoholics Anonymous a genuine effort to try to turn his life around. This idea came at the insistence of his second wife. Although she too went on to leave Charles, the program resonated with him deeply. He loved the family dynamic of the meetings and the supportive environment. He got sober and preached the gospel of AA to anyone who would listen. Alcoholics Anonymous is a 12-step program that was founded in the 1930s. Its members believe sobriety requires faith in a power greater than yourself. Admitting past mistakes, making amends to the people you've harmed through drinking, and continuing to focus on spiritual growth. A program I think anyone could get on board with, addiction issues or not. Diedrich saw only one flaw with AA. It didn't accept other kinds of substance abusers in their meetings. Chuck, being a natural speaker and people pleaser as a salesman, quickly rose up the ranks in the Santa Monica chapter of AA. He started mentoring and sponsoring members and started hosting more laid back and informal meetings at his home. In 1957, Charles was part of a UCLA experiment that attempted to use LSD to cure alcoholism, a decision he would later in life call the most important single experience of his entire life. This experiment might have been what inspired his next move. In 1958, Charles Diedrich decided to form his own group, but he wanted his program to embrace all kinds of addicts. First, he called the group the Tender Loving Care Club. He even rented out a building for $100 a month and plastered TLCC on a sign above the door. But soon after starting this club, he renamed it Senanon. A blend of the words symposium and anonymous. Go figure. Out of the gates, Chuck was seen as sort of a drug rehab guru, and he was innovating the space in many ways. He focused on marginalized people that society had turned their backs on. He was stern with people around him with tactics like mocking, taunting, and bullying. But he believed that this tough love was necessary to achieve and maintain sobriety. He's even credited by some as having coined the phrase, today is the first day of the rest of your life. It's like that scene in Forrest Gump where Forrest Gump invented shit happens. One of the early tactics Diedrich incorporated into Synanon was having groups sit in a circle facing each other and taking turns tearing each other down, rattling off things from negative thoughts on a person's appearance to character defects they notice. If a person on the end of this verbal lashing got defensive, the entire circle would dogpile that person, joining in with insults, lies, and secret exposing from literally every direction. 
The process would repeat until everyone in the circle had their turn in the hot seat. This process became known as the game. I feel like the philosophy was to hold people accountable by making them face inescapable criticism and judgment in order to challenge them to be better. You know, like you tear a person down to build them back up, if you will. His catchphrase of sorts was, talk dirty, live clean. Chuck was on a mission. He wanted to create a society that would transform the world. Over the years, the organization grew, building businesses and starting schools. And its goal was a utopian revolution. Synanon wasn't just a program. It was a way of living, as important to his members as any of the world's major religions. Now, that's some heavy aspiration. You couple that with lofty goals, a charismatic leader, and controversial guiding principles and tactics, and inevitably a dark side was bound to emerge. The 1960s ushered in a decade of drug experimentation, and of course, fear. So when Chuck moved a bunch of recovering drug addicts into a quiet Santa Monica suburb, the locals freaked out. The city came after Synanon trying to shut them down through any means necessary including zoning violations, which landed Chuck in jail for 30 days. However, the controversy served as free publicity. A righteous man offering to help people in need while the man tries to bring him down is a message that a lot of people aligned with at this time. And by people, I mean hippies. Visitors to Synanon included Star Trek's Leonard Nimoy, Jane Fonda, Charlton Heston, and Milton Berle, among dozens of other curious stars of the time. Synanon hosted some of the most lively parties in town, partly thanks to the fact that so many jazz musicians were in Synanon trying to get clean. Donations started pouring in. Synanon was becoming a national discussion. Synanon required any new members to come in and quit their vice cold turkey. A challenging ordeal by itself, but you were also expected to attend support groups, participate in hard physical labor, and play the game three times a week. The Synanon compound was its own ecosystem, providing food, cigarettes, and classes to occupy the time of members and keep them entertained and busy. As long as you worked and contributed, you never had to leave. Synanon was also self-policed, which created a treacherous energy, because telling on other members who broke the rules would lead said members to be banished. You would also be banished if it was discovered that you did not tell on a member for committing an infraction. No to anybody starting any kind of non-cult-like support groups. Don't create such a tense environment by fostering betrayal amongst your members. By 1968, Synanon had become a household name. There was even a Hollywood film made about it. A new type of Synanon membership was established. The Lifestyler. These members were allowed to have jobs and live outside of the Synanon community with the understanding that they give most of their income to the organization. This new kind of member allowed Synanon to fill its pot with outside money that it otherwise had been reluctant to receive. See, the organization was leaving a lot of cash on the table by declining government-funded grants. Why? Well, those grants came with stupid stipulations like some kind of independent examination and verification of success rates, most likely through nonsensical things like drug tests and similar methods. And Synanon was holding firm to the notion of an 80 to 100% success rate, a rate that I don't think would hold up very well to facts or scrutiny of any kind. So through these member donations, Synanon found a way to keep their efficiency rate high, 
and lined their war chests with loot. This experiment, however, wouldn't last long, though, as this type of member was often accused of not being committed enough to the cause. Most lifestylers faded out of the program, although some joined the ranks fully, leaving their homes behind as a show of true commitment. The program was the topic of discussion for world-renowned psychologists who respected the no-nonsense approach to sobriety. Synanon had become such a respected institution that courts were even routinely sending addicts to Synanon as a condition of their parole. After its massive expansion into all parts of California, while also erecting satellite offices in places like Detroit and Puerto Rico, the business side of the organization was growing tremendously. As of 1968, Synanon was bringing in roughly $1.2 million from its various businesses, including gas stations and a manufacturer of branded promotional items. By 1976, it was grossing $8.7 million with estimated assets of over $30 million. This expansion came with stricter rules. When members stepped out of line, their hair would be cut. Permission was required from an elder if you wanted to date someone. And celibacy was expected. On top of all this, rooms were constantly raided by the Synanon police for overly personal belongings as to prevent gluttonous behavior. New rules were created on the fly, such as splitting members up into groups of people who either worked the first 12 hours of the day and slept at night, or vice versa. They created a Synanon police force to enforce these rules. The justification to and from the members was that addicts require routine and accountability. Without people around to enforce accountability, they'd be in danger of relapsing. One thing that never changed in all this growth? The game. In fact, the game evolved. Chuck would even dictate that 48-hour sessions be held at times. He called these events the trip, and they featured sleep deprivation and even a Ouija board. People would become so delusional from lack of sleep that they started to see Charles as a deity of sorts, godlike, feeding his ego and narcissism even more. As things got more intense in what was now undeniably a cult, Synanon adopted even more cult-like characteristics when they started going after members who would defect. These people were labeled splitties. And to cut down on splitties, Chuck forbade members from leaving Synanon buildings. The reality was that his promise of sobriety and the ability to re-enter society after three to five years was bullshit. And there were stories of people leaving Synanon compounds, going home, and relapsing almost immediately. And what better way to make sure people never relapse than to never let them out of your sight. Chuck had always been seen as the face and creator of Synanon. But what the group morphed into placed him into more of a holy role, an infallible god of sorts. If Chuck no longer liked the food, the food was fully removed from the premises. No one was allowed to eat it anymore. When Chuck wanted to go on a weight loss journey, all members were forced to participate. And in an infamous move, when Chuck decided to shave off all of his hair, Within hours, the entire congregation of Synanon was bald. Chuck even started wearing overalls. So overalls became the unofficial uniform of Synanon. The most controversial decision of all came when Chuck decided that he wanted to quit smoking. Cigarettes became banned on all Synanon property, causing an uproar. Cigarettes for so many members in Synanon were the only vice that stood between them and relapse. It was their one little security blanket to take the edge off. 150 members quit immediately after the no smoking mandate was enforced, which in a community of over 1,500 and growing, Chuck couldn't have cared less. As far as he was concerned, 
They were weak, not true believers, and he was glad to see them leave. A pivotal moment occurred in 1973 when a woman was speaking disrespectfully to Diedrich's wife, Betty, during a session of the game. This was par for the course at Synanon typically, but for whatever reason, this time, Diedrich took it very personally. He grabbed a can of soda and poured it all over the woman. At first, he apologized, but he almost immediately recanted his apology and rationalized his behavior as justified. I gave the woman a lesson in manners, he explained. And in that moment, a line was crossed. You see, this was an act of physical violence, a rule that had never been broken while playing the game. The invisible hierarchy was now plain as day. This was also made clear by the fact that Chuck, his third wife, Betty, and a few elder members lived in a beautiful compound called Home Place, while the rest of the members were housed just down the road in army-style barracks. When the IRS came for Synanon's tax-exempt status, arguing that it was no longer a drug rehab program, but an experimental community, Chuck declared Synanon a religion. The IRS never officially recognized Synanon as a religion, though it would be at least another decade's worth of legal battles before it finally stripped the company of its tax-exempt status. Things at Synanon got even more complicated when the court system started sending them troubled youths. Synanon, for all the good and the bad, was intended to be a place where addicts came in order to change their lives. Teens being forced to come there weren't blinded by their own goals and aspirations and could see Synanon for what it had become, a prison camp. These kids were labeled the punk squad, and they were impossible to manage for Synanon. Remember that infamous soda pour? Well, it was definitely a sign of things to come because the solution to the unruly teens was simple. Brutal beatings. A decision that led to another mass member exodus in protest to the violence. Even before the arrival of the punk squad, children were an issue for Chuck. Kids born in the Synanon were separated by their family and raised by the community as a whole once they were between six and nine months old. Chuck saw the time it takes to raise children as detrimental to the community. In other words, child-rearing cuts into my free labor profits, and Papa Chucky ain't having it. By January of 1977, Diedrich's distaste for children turned into an official policy. Men were pressured to get vasectomies, and women were shamed into getting abortions. These policies instigated another wave of defections, though Diedrich's increasingly inward focus caused him not to care. Rod Jansen noted in his book about Synanon that one member told Diedrich, I'll give you my life, Chuck, but not my balls. And funny enough, Chuck himself opted not to get a vasectomy. At this point, all that remained were the most beaten down and indoctrinated members of Synanon. People that didn't seem to care that Charles, once heralded as a pioneer in addiction counseling, had become a tyrant who couldn't even pretend that he held himself to the same standard as the other Sennonites. Chuck's wife Betty tragically died of lung cancer on April 19th of 1977. After that, things got even more grim. You see, because Betty, as crazy as it may sound, seemed to dial back some of Chuck's weirder, megalomaniacal tendencies. After her death, Nothing could temper his darker desires to control people. By October of that year, only a few months after the death of his wife, Diedrich's policies became even more extreme and controlling. He declared that married Sennonites should split up and find new partners. He started by breaking up his own daughter's marriage. About 600 couples were divorced by the following year. 
Now, this might be the most hatingest move in the history of haterdom. Chuck said, if I'm alone, everybody's alone. Although internally the chaos was well known, Synanon was still a popular charitable donation hub for thousands of businesses. So the money continued to pour in all through the 70s and into the 80s. In 1978, Chuck ordered a very eyebrow-raising move by Synanon and purchased over $200,000 worth of firearms. A move that was giving very much David Koresh. That same year, ex-Sennonite Phil Ritter would try to extract his young daughter from the organization and nearly lost his life. Ritter's wife was still in the organization and had moved with their child to Sennonon's Detroit facility. Ritter sought legal action against the cult, and in response, the church sent two men to beat him senseless in his own driveway. He wound up in a coma for a week. The shiny reputation that the outside world saw while horrible conditions remained the reality within Synanon, were eventually exposed by a small newspaper called the Point Reyes Light, an outlet out of Marin County, California. The publication brought the child abuse, wrongful imprisonment, assault, and misappropriation of funds to light and started a firestorm of negative press. Despite being constantly threatened for libel action, the paper didn't back down. The Light even won a Pulitzer Prize in 1979 for its reporting on the organization, something virtually unheard of for a paper that size. The negative press infuriated Synanon members. So much so that when an unfavorable news story was ran by NBC in 1978, members sent hundreds of ominous letters to NBC executives, threatening physical harm. Synanon also spent the 1970s suing anybody who wrote a critical article or aired a negative TV segment about it. When it was finally revealed to the broader public just what a financial and emotional scam Synanon had become, these stories were no longer considered hearsay. One of the most infamous incidents of violence committed by Synanon against its detractors is remembered by many, particularly because of the weapon of choice, a rattlesnake. Attorney Paul Morantz had successfully represented a young woman who had been held against her will by Synanon. When he returned to his home in the Pacific Palisades on October 10, 1978, he opened his mailbox, only to be immediately bitten by a rattlesnake. The perpetrators who placed the snake in the mailbox removed its rattle to keep it quiet. Morantz rushed outside, yelling to his neighbors for help. Luckily for the attorney, an ambulance arrived in time, saving his life after quick and extensive treatment with antivenom. Two men, 20-year-old Lance Kenton and 28-year-old Joseph Masico, were charged with attempted murder, along with Diedrich, for conspiring to commit the murder. Chuck, the glaring narcissist that he is, loved to record his own voice, a practice that came back to bite him, like a rattlesnake. The police produced tapes of him talking about violence and specifically mentioning Morantz's address in the Pacific Palisades. All three pled no contest, and Diedrich entered into a plea deal that included probation, though he didn't see any jail time. The other part of the plea? Diedrich would have to step down as head of Synanon, a move that hobbled the cult to a point of no return. Synanon dragged along through the 80s, leaderless, bleeding members worse than ever, mired in controversy, and battling negative press as the rattlesnake cult. Synanon was formally stripped of his tax-exempt status in 1991 and completely disbanded shortly after that. Charles E. Diederich died in Visalia, California in 1997. As dark as things got, Chuck Dieterich started Synanon with the best of intentions. Unfortunately, he let power, greed, and ego 
drive him to treat people who turn to him for guidance and a chance at change, the same change that AA gave him at his lowest moment in life, like Minions, whose only purpose was to make his dream of a utopian society a reality. Sometimes in life you come across opportunities that seem so amazing, so life-changing, that it's worth overlooking a few bad cards being dealt along the way. But in the wise words of Kenny Rogers, you gotta know when to hold them, when to fold them, and when to walk away from a tyrant with lofty aspirations and uncontrolled ego and clippers in his hand. This has been another episode of Cultober. Thank you guys so much for the support. I hope you guys enjoyed this one. And I hope this story doesn't deter anybody from going out and seeking sobriety from reputable resources. What happened in Synanon was really sad, but it's definitely not reflective of the hard work that people do to try to help others get sober. All right, folks, that's all I got. Catch you guys next time.